Well, last week we came to the end of the book of Ezra, and as uh, we've said, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one long account. In the uh, Hebrew uh, Bible, it's one story. So we continue that same account of the Israelites in post-exile by looking at Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, just to place this in context, Nehemiah comes 13 years after Ezra arrived. So this is uh, some time has passed. You may recall uh, last week we saw as we wrapped up Ezra that Ezra had been there for about four months, and through his preaching and through his prayers, uh, he brought about a great repentance there in uh, the people in and around Jerusalem, all the people of Judah from top to bottom, from the high priest all the way down to the average citizen, came to repentance under Ezra and under his leadership. Well, 13 years have passed, and we say, well, what what has gone on in those 13 years? Well, we don't have an account of it, but presumably there has been some rebuilding. You remember when all of the exiles returned, uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, the city, and the temple were a complete ruin. Uh, They were left there a smoldering ruin uh, by the invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon way back, years and years earlier. And there they were, uh, faced with an incredible task of rebuilding the temple, which they did. The temple had already been rebuilt. It had been standing there for half a century by the time Nehemiah arrived. In the 13 years prior to Nehemiah's uh, uh, entrance onto the scene, presumably the people of Israel began also to rebuild the city, the walls, the structures, the things around the temple, which were no doubt just a monumental task. And what we find, if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, you may recall that sermon, it was about external opposition. And you may recall how I put a timeline up on the screen. Ezra chapter 4 showed us what happened in the future. Uh, It flashed forward, as I mentioned, uh, through many years and many kings, and it shows us what happens right before Nehemiah comes on the scene. What you see in Ezra chapter 4, verses 8 through 23, is you see that some agitators, some of the people that lived around the people of Israel who hated what they were doing, who didn't want to see them rebuild the city, had sent a letter to King Artaxerxes, the king that we will see today. King Artaxerxes read the letter. The letter said, hey, king, you better stop this rebuilding of this city. It's a rebellious city. Go check the archives. The king went and checked the archives. Yes, Jerusalem had rebelled against some kings in the past, and he sent a letter to these guys saying, put a stop to the rebuilding of the city. And what we see at the end of that in verse 24, verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, when the the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before these two guys that had sent the letter, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. There's no description made other than that. By force and power made them cease. That brings us to our text today. If you just forward now to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, 
If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along. I'm going to read Nehemiah 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? When the king said to me, what are you requesting? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. <clears throat> So a decree by King Artaxerxes, this king that Ezra works for, had been sent down. End the building of this wall by force if you need to. They went in and destroyed and stopped and burned, obviously, when 
Nehemiah hears this report, it was a very violent disruption, a very violent end to the rebuilding that had been going on. Where is Nehemiah? While all this is going on in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is in Susa. You may remember Susa. Susa uh, is the area, the city, that King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as the Bible calls him, uh, is in at the beginning of the book of Esther. That's where he holds a lavish banquet. Susa was known for its opulence. Susa was a magnificent place. It's what one scholar called the winter retreat for the Persian kings. That's where Nehemiah was, living in the lap of luxury, in a place known for its buildings and its gardens and its luxury. That's where he was staying. And then sometime in the month of Kislev, which would be November, December, if you're counting by our months, Nehemiah's brother came to visit him, along with some other guys. And we're not really told what the entire conversation was like. You can imagine if you've had friends from where you used to live come and visit, what's the conversation like? How was it? How was the trip? Have they fixed that road yet? Nah, potholes are still bad in that area. I hate that. How's, how are the guys back home? How's the wife? How are the kids? Who knows how long this conversation went on? And then Nehemiah asked them about two things. He said, how are the Jews doing who returned from exile? And how is the city of Jerusalem doing? How's the old How's the old place? Is it doing all right? Now, Nehemiah was a guy just like we are. He's a, a human being. He, he lived a long time before we did. He lived in a different era, a different place. But in so many ways, he was like we are. Nehemiah, I'm sure, had a daily routine. He had a life. It was a nice life. It's where God had placed him. God had given him a calling to be cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, he probably got up every day, put on his slippers, read the morning paper, brushed his teeth, and went off to work. Probably had a nice life. And his life that was a fine life, that was actually a nice life in a place like Susa, was upended in a moment, in an instant. The life that God gave him for a time was brought to an end when these two questions were asked. Nehemiah inquired as to what was going on back in the old neighborhood. And what was the answer given to him? The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life when your life that had a nice routine to it, that seemed to be going well, that had everything kind of going for it, was that life that you were living at that time upended in a moment by something that happened to you in your life? By one thing. You see, what if his brother had not come to visit? Do you think that he would have heard about what happened in Jerusalem? 
I don't know. How would he have heard? I mean, there was no social media. There was no 24-hour news. What, where would he have heard about this, being so far away in Susa and, and having a daily life in, inside the palace of the king? You know, perhaps all of this would have happened. Jerusalem would have been destroyed, harassed, maybe the people killed, maybe scattered again, never to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah would have died a happy guy in Susa, serving the king, completely ignorant of what was going on down there. But Hanani did come to visit, and Nehemiah did ask him these questions. And his life, as he knew it, came to an end. Let me ask you another question. Do you think God had something to do with this visit? Do you think God sent Hanani there when he did? Do you think God had something to do with the questions that Nehemiah asked him that day? You know, Christian, if God has placed you exactly where he wants you for the purposes to be fulfilled in your life that he has planned for you, he can also move you in an instant to another place if he chooses. Our God, who is intimately involved in world affairs, is also intimately involved in the smallest details of your life. The conversations that you have with individual people, the questions that you ask, and the answers that are given. And sometimes, when God moves us from one place to another, it can be quite a painful experience, as Nehemiah experience. Notice his reaction. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Sure, that's not how Nehemiah expected his day to end. In fasting and mourning and weeping on the ground. Have you ever received news that made you collapse? Maybe not physically, maybe physically, maybe internally. Maybe someone came to you and said, I want a divorce. Maybe someone came to you and said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your daughter has been killed in a car accident. I know for me, and especially on this day, I can vividly remember the day that my mom told me that she has stage four cancer. This news is devastating to Nehemiah. It is news that made him literally collapse and weep and mourn for days. Let me ask you a question. Where do you turn when you receive news that makes you collapse? Notice what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, as we'll see, is a man of action. He's a type A personality. He's a doer. He's a leader. But notice where Nehemiah goes first. And it's not to try to fix the problem himself. Nehemiah, this type A personality, his first instinct is to sit down and to pray. To seek the Lord of calamity. This is actually the first of nine recorded prayers by Nehemiah, this man of action. And his prayer is 
fascinating. The Hebrew word that is oftentimes used for prayer is a word that means to supplicate, to plead, to ask God for something. But that isn't the word that's used here. As upset as Nehemiah is, the Hebrew word that is used here does not mean supplicate. It means to advocate on behalf of another or to intercede. As upset and devastating as this news is to Nehemiah, he's not thinking about himself primarily. His prayer is centered on others. He begins his prayer by praising God for who he is. Notice this. He begins by acknowledging that, that his God is Yahweh a personal God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, that he's also the God of heaven, the Lord of all. He's great. He's awesome. He is the faithful God. He is the God of steadfast love. And in acknowledging that, he's also acknowledging at the same time that, that he is God's humble servant, that even though he has this job in Susa serving the king at his right hand, he is just a humble servant of God, interceding for Israel and in need of God's mercy. And what's even perhaps more interesting about this prayer is that the, the next thing that he does after acknowledging who God is, is confess the sins of the people of Israel. Now you would expect that from Ezra. You remember Ezra's prayer was very similar. Ezra heard news as well, and he fell down and collapsed and tore his clothes and started praying. And Ezra's prayer was immediately a prayer of confession of sin. But you would expect that because the, the news that Ezra received is we're all sinning greatly. But what, what about Nehemiah? Nehemiah doesn't get word that, that Israel is in sin. Nehemiah gets word that Israel is in trouble, that the gates are destroyed, that, that the city is in ruin by force. You would expect someone who, who hears that to immediately begin to pray, Lord, why? Lord, please make this stop. Please, Lord, stop these people that are doing this and rebuild the city, Father. You have the power to do it. Please take away this grief that I'm feeling, Lord. Now, these are legitimate prayers. Not wrong to pray that. We see prayers like that all throughout the Bible. Just open up the book of Psalms and you'll see prayer after prayer after prayer where the psalmist just cries out to God, Lord, I am hurting deeply and I'm pleading with you to make it stop. It's not wrong to pray that way. Paul pleaded with God three times, Lord, please take away this thorn that you've given to me. But it's interesting that Nehemiah goes right to confessing sin. Interestingly, Nehemiah's prayer really has three components. He begins with worship and adoration. He moves to confession. And lastly, he moves to petition. Now, Nehemiah confesses sin. And you say, well, why is he confessing sin? Why, when he hears that Israel's been destroyed, that Jerusalem's walls have been knocked down again, that, that they've been being harassed, that they're in trouble, why does he begin confessing sin? Well, because as you see, he immediately acknowledges the Mosaic Covenant. He acknowledges that the nation of Israel, as long as they are in the land of Israel, are under the theocracy that God set up 
under Moses. In fact, he even begins quoting from the Torah. He quotes from Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30 and verses 8 and 9. Remember, Lord, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're faithful, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. If you, but if you return to me, then I will gather you and I will make my name dwell there. Now, why was it important for Nehemiah to begin praying this way? Why is it important for us when we gather together as God's people, why is it important for us to go through the stages of the worship service that we go through, the liturgy that we have? I mean, we, we, we actually have this liturgy for a reason. It's not just haphazard. We do this, I think the same reason it was important for Nehemiah, because it places the situation that these people are in, the destruction of this wall, the harassment, the trouble, the great sorrow, the sorrow that Nehemiah is feeling, it places all of that in context, in a larger context. It keeps Nehemiah of accusing God of wrongdoing. It'd be very easy for us, I think it is very easy for us oftentimes to accuse God of being the one who's at fault when we are experiencing hurt. It's very easy to do that. But think about it. Israel is in this covenant with God. What did Israel owe God? Under the Mosaic covenant, Israel owed God perfect and complete obedience. That's what God said. If you obey my laws perfectly, you will flourish in the land. Nothing will happen to you. But if you, obey, if you disobey me at any point, you will be cast out of the land. What does Nehemiah know for certain? If he knows anything about the people of Israel, he knows that the people of Israel have been unfaithful to the covenant. So when he hears that Jerusalem's walls have been destroyed again, that they're in trouble, the first thing he thinks is, God, I know that we have sinned against you greatly. Lord, I know that we don't deserve a stress-free life. I know that we don't deserve a calamity-free life. Calamity-free and stress-free life would be due to your mercy, not due to us earning it. God, please forgive our sin. If there's one thing I know for certain, it's that we are sinners. That's how Nehemiah begins his prayer. Now, praying in this way, I think it does two important things for Nehemiah, for his sake. First of all, again, it keeps him from accusing God of wrongdoing. It places this whole situation in the proper context, but it also helps Nehemiah for the next steps that he takes. Because I said that Nehemiah is a type A kind of guy, and he's about to take action. He's not just going to stay in Susa the rest of his life. He's about to act on this, but what he's about to do is terrifying. It's terrifying because he tells us here at the very end that he is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now that doesn't mean anything to us today. Cupbearer is not a job that anyone has in, in, in our country. But listen to what one scholar says. With literary artistry, 
Nehemiah has withheld until this moment in the narrative the nature of his work in Susa. Until now, we had no idea that he held this important position of cupbearer in the royal palace. Writing in the same century as Nehemiah, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the cupbearer's office was highly esteemed among the Persian people. This cupbearer was a man of recognized dignity in court circles. He was entirely trustworthy. He was the king's confidant and next in rank to princes. That's what Nehemiah was. The cupbearer was, some scholars say, maybe the closest person to the king, at the king's right hand. Why? Because the cupbearer tasted every meal and every drink that came to the king's lips first. Why? Because there was always intrigue, there was always political maneuvering, and there were always people that wanted to knock the king off the throne so that they could take its place. And a great way to do it is by poisoning the king. So the cupbearer had to be the most trustworthy man. He had to be a confidant, a loyal man, and a man who would taste, essentially be kind of like a secret service agent, put his self in the path of disaster and die for the king's sake if the food was indeed poisoned. That is probably why Nehemiah was exactly the guy that his brother wanted to see when this happened in Israel. When Jerusalem's walls were knocked down and and this decree from the king came and the guys who came and knocked down and burned the walls and smashed and stopped everything by force, they probably held up the king's decree. Look, King Artaxerxes said we can do this. Step out. So this guy, Hanani, said, hey guys, my brother is cupbearer to the king. Let's go see him. Maybe he can do something about this. It's interesting just seeing that Nehemiah was God's guy in the right place at the right time. In exactly the right time, God had him placed exactly where he needed to be. And you see that all throughout scripture. You see it in Daniel. You see it in Esther. You see it in Moses. You see it in Joseph. Over and over again, you see that God has placed his perfect person in the right place at the right time. Now, Nehemiah doesn't yet know what's going to happen when he goes before the king. But notice this, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 2. Notice the date that is given in verse 1. He says that this is in the month of Nisan, right? Now, if you go back, when was he told about this disaster? When did this conversation happen? Well, it happened in the month of Kislev, which was November, December. He goes before the king and has this conversation with King Artaxerxes in the month of Nisan, which is April, which means that Nehemiah has been in prayer over this conversation that he's going to have with the king for four months. I don't know if I've ever prayed about a conversation that I'm going to have for very long at all, and certainly not for four months. Nehemiah knows what he's stepping into, and what he has to do terrifies him. You see this, when when the king says to him, why is your face sad? You're not sick, so why are you so sad? Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. 
You can see the tension here, the drama in this moment. Nehemiah is bringing wine to the king and he can't hide his emotions any longer. Who knows how long he's had to stuff down being upset over what's happened and put on a smiling face before the king. Why? Because you were not ever to show a sad face before the king of Persia, ever. Anyone that served in his presence had to have a smile on their face at all times, regardless of what was going on in their life. That was the rule. And if you were sad in front of the king, it could mean a death sentence. The king could have you killed right then and there for being sad in his presence. And that's why when the king says, why are you sad? Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. Artaxerxes notices that he's sad. And remember, it was Artaxerxes that proclaimed that the walls of Jerusalem were to be stopped. So if Ezra's about, or Nehemiah is about to say anything about this to the king, why he's sad, he's not only sad before the king, but he's going to tell him why, which is, king, your decree is making me sad, essentially, if you trace it all back. He's been sad in front of the king. He's about to tell the king his decree is what's upsetting him, and he's about to ask the king for this long-term leave of absence when he's the king's right-hand man, the cupbearer. What are the odds that this is going to work and end, out well, end up well for Nehemiah? I mean, I don't know what tough situations or tough conversations you've ever been in before. But I would seriously doubt that any one of us out here has been in a conversation this stress-inducing in your life. But notice Nehemiah doesn't lie. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to smooth things over. He tells King Artaxerxes, a man who could have his head on a platter instantly, the truth. How? How does he have such courage in this moment when he's very much afraid, when he is terrified to tell the truth? I think it might have something to do with his prayers for four months. Notice that at the end of his prayer, he does petition God. He asks God, please God, give me success. When I go and have this conversation, Lord, please have mercy on me and give me success. What's very interesting in this prayer is that after he acknowledges who God is, when he goes down the roll call of every attribute of God, that God is Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the personal covenant-keeping God of Israel, that he's the God of heaven, the God of the universe. He is the great and awesome God. He is the faithful God. He is the God of steadfast love. After going through that whole list, look at the end of his prayer. Who is King Artaxerxes? This man. This man. After remembering who God is, Nehemiah can go confidently before Artaxerxes knowing that he is a man and nothing more. It doesn't matter what his position is in this world. It doesn't matter that he's the king of this world. It doesn't matter that he could crush Nehemiah in an instant bodily. 
Who is Artaxerxes before the great and awesome God of heaven? Just like Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes is a man and nothing more. Someone that the, who God can turn in his hand in an instant. Did four months of prayer to the God of heaven eliminate Nehemiah's fear? No. Four months of prayer, and he still says, I'm terrified. But four months of prayer helped him overcome his fear. Isn't it interesting that when, (laughs) I love what he says next, when King Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah, somehow, after Nehemiah is essentially tells him that what you have done Your decree is what hurt me. The city that you have stopped by force is what's crushing me. Notice that rather than kill Nehemiah on the spot, King Artaxerxes asks him, what would you have me do? Now I love what Nehemiah says next. Says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this couldn't have been a four-month prayer. This is, a, this is like in the moment, what would you have me do? This was a quick prayer. Four months of, 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 of praying and, and having the axe acrostic in front of his face and all this kind of stuff. And when, Nehemiah, when, when Artaxerxes says, what would you have me do? What does he say? God, help me. Lord, give me right now. <laughs> Make him not chop my head off. I, I don't know what he said. It was a quick prayer that he threw up before he said what he was about to say. I love that. You see, Nehemiah has spent months in prayer, and yet he's not a superhuman. He's human. He still needs to pray in the moment, Lord, help me. He's still very much afraid, and so he throws up a quick prayer. And notice why Nehemiah asks the seeming impossible. Look at what he says. Send me to Jerusalem, the city that you issued a decree against. Send me there to rebuild it, even though you decreed that it be shut down. Send me there, even though I'm your cupbearer and you need me every day, three meals a day. Send me there with official letters from you, overturning your decree, so that I can show papers to the guys who wanted the building stopped. Send me there with an official letter to this man Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he can give me enough timber to make beams for the walls that you ordered stopped. And oh, by the way, send me there to build a house for myself so that I, your cupbearer that you need every day for three meals a day, can be away from you for a long time living down there and helping this rebuilding project. (laughs) What do you think the odds are that this, these requests are going to go anywhere. <laughs> well, friend, it doesn't matter what the odds are. Because when the Lord God of heaven wants something to happen, what are odds? Christian, the good hand of your God is on you, just like it was on Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah say? The king granted me what I asked. 
because the good hand of my God was on me. He knew it was all God. There is no way this is going to happen unless God is involved. Jesus said to you, Christian, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, I am amazed at what Nehemiah did here, because I don't think I would have done it. When I think of the magnitude of what he was willing to do, and we will see what he ends up doing. But even being willing to do that, Nehemiah was living in the richest place in the world at that moment. He was in the lap of luxury. Nehemiah had complete job security. And yet, when faced with the trouble and shame of his people, he was willing to leave his cushy place at the right hand of the king to enter into the sorrows of his people, even though he didn't have to. And I hope you see, Christian, in Nehemiah, a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, when you and I were full of trouble and shame because of the sin that we committed, where was Jesus? Jesus was living in the lap of luxury. You know, if Susa was a place of opulence, heaven was far greater. Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of honor, just as he had been since before time began. You know, in terms of location and position, Jesus was a million miles from our troubles that we had created for ourselves. And yet Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he left that position of authority, that position of privilege, that position in luxury to enter into the sorrows of his people, even though he didn't have to. Brothers and sisters, I am amazed at what Nehemiah did, but I am far more amazed at what our Lord Jesus did. And even though I don't think I would be able to do what Nehemiah did, I know I couldn't do what Jesus did. Think of the magnitude of what our Lord was willing to do, and today remember that he did it. He came into this world to rescue you from the trouble and the shame that your sin had caused you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word. We thank you that you allow us to come into your presence to remember who you are, to remember who we are, and to lift up our petitions to you. And Father, we pray that you would remind us that you have a plan for us, that that whatever we are going through right now in our life is, is due to your hand in our life. And Father, we are so grateful for what our Lord did in coming to this earth to save us from your judgment. And we pray, Father, that you would impress that upon our hearts now as we conclude our service. In Jesus' name, amen.